begin? Uh, well, we're going to change gears now. We did all that philosophy for a week or two, Vedanta and so on, and now, uh, in a sense, we're really going just from the uh, sort of the brain of the tradition, all this Vedanta, really to the heart of the tradition. And uh, we're going to be speaking about the, I should write, the Itihasa, the history. Uh, Iti in Sanskrit means thus, Ha means in the past, and Asa means it was, thus it was in the past. And so this word, uh, Itihasa, is the ancient word for history. Ramayan, which we're going to discuss today, that's the genre, it's considered to be history within the sacred tradition. The word Ramayan, which is sort of somewhat non-literally translated as a book. Rama, of course, is a, uh, one of the most famous deities within Hinduism, a great personality considered to be an avatar, an incarnation of God. The word Rama comes from a Sanskrit root, Ram, which means to, to give pleasure or take pleasure. And the word Rama uh, has been etymologized by ancient sages as God who's the source of all pleasure. There's a verse, Iti Rama Padena, so and so. There's an ancient Sanskrit verse which means that this word Rama means that God is actually the source of pleasure, the source of joy and happiness. And the word Ayana is Rama Ayana. Ayana is from the Sanskrit root E, which means to go. If you know Spanish, ir still means to go in Spanish. So uh, Rama Ayana, so literally the goings of Ram in the sense of, like, uh, the deeds of Ram and so on. So that's the book, the Ramayana, and it's Itihasa, the genre's history. Uh, we have some uh, attempts at guessing the chronology in, in the textbook. Actually, I, many things that I brought up earlier in the course, which were not as so clear, perhaps at the time, may become more clear now. When we discussed the Ramayana, so I'm going to remind you of some of these. One was, I, I kind of made a thing about a statement in the Upanishads, some of the oldest Upanishads, such as Chandogya, which say that Itihasa Puranam Cha Panchamo Veda Uchite, that the Itihasa, this particular genre of literature, which has two famous members, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, that we'll discuss after the Ramayana, and then the Puranas, all these ancient texts that we'll be talking about. So, in one of the oldest Upanishads, which goes back way before Buddhism, it said that this genre, Itihasa, and the Purana, and the word Purana means ancient, uh, that that's the fifth Veda. So it's obvious that way back in Vedic times, uh, long before the dates that are given in the textbook, there was Itihasa and Purana, because the ancient texts talk about them as the fifth Veda. So not only did they exist, they were actually important. Uh, so if, if, you, if you read scholarly writings about this, it's admitted often that we don't really know how old the, the story is, the Ramayana. Uh, when, it's, when you hear that it's between 200 uh, BCE and 200 CE, what that really means is that that particular redaction, you know, Spanish, redactar, to edit, in other words, the text was edited at a certain time. And it was an oral tradition before that. So you have this oral tradition coming back from long, long, long before this, and at a certain point, writing starts in India. The first writing, the first evidence of writing we have in India is about 2,300 years ago. The uh, engravings done by Ashok, the Emperor Ashok, all over India promoting, and, and even outside India promoting Buddhism. That's only 2,300 years ago. So we have references to Itihasa, this type of literature, in texts 
that go way, way before that. So we know it's an oral tradition. At a certain point, an oral tradition gets written down. Hey, no problem. So if you say, oh, you're okay, Sarah? So at a certain point, the oral tradition gets written down, and what scholars do then is they date that writing when it gets written down. So that's not the date of the text, which they don't tell you. That's just the date of that particular writing, but it's an oral tradition going back long, long before that. So how old the oral tradition is, your guess is probably as good as theirs. It's just very, very old. So those dates in the textbook are, anyway. Uh, the date of the of writing it, not the date of the tradition, not the date of the story. And uh, so that's one thing I brought up earlier. Uh, one thing I want to say about the Ramayana, it's really Rama or Lord Rama as he's called in or Ram Chandra. Chandra in Sanskrit means moon. The moon is considered to be sort of a very sublime, beautiful object. Especially in warm countries, the moon is considered to be cooling. And so uh, Chandra, moon, is often put at the end of names, names of deities. Krishna, for example, is called Krishna Chandra, and Ram is often called Ram Chandra. So this story of Rama has had an absolutely extraordinary impact on Indian culture and on culture outside of India. In fact, it gets to the, to the real heart of Hinduism. I would say that uh, in terms of, to put it that way, sacred India, the real heart, the real essence, I think, of, of what it means to be within this tradition is the conviction that God, somehow or other God, however you philosophize that, and, you know, Vedanta has different opinions on it, but however you look at it, that somehow or other God came down to earth and appeared on that land. So when you go to India, when you live in India, when you're born in India, when you're immersed in that tradition, there's this very powerful uh, sense that you're living in a land in which God and goddesses and everything actually walked and lived on that land. It, it's very, in a sense, it's analogous to the experience for people within the biblical traditions, let's say, going to Israel and visiting, say, the area around the Sea of Galilee where Jesus conducted his ministry, or, you know, all the different places associated with, with biblical history, Jewish and, and Christian and even Islamic history. So that's really, I think, the heart of, of the Hindu Vedic experience, the idea that you're living in a place where God appeared and where all kinds of extraordinary events took place. And so now we have this, not really philosophizing about it in various sophisticated ways, but actually an example, a story of an appearance of God in the world. And that's how it's understood in the tradition. So, for example, did anyone here see the Gandhi movie? A little before your time? Some of you saw it. Anyway. The Gandhi movie sort of begins with what is called in Hollywood bookends, like you sort of frame the story. It begins with his death, where, where he's shot, and then he's lying there, and then you, they tell the whole story, and then at the end you go back. That's like um, Saving Private Ryan, use that same technique, bookends, where you kind of frame the story. But anyway, so uh, in the very beginning of the Gandhi movie, when Gandhi's shot, he says in English, Oh God. But actually what he said is, Hey Ram. And so those were Gandhi's last words. Hey, hey, means oh, like oh, wrong. So I, in 1987, I believe they made a TV serial uh, of the wrong. Actually, actually, I know the guy that made it, the director, Ram Sagar. But anyway, so they, they made this TV serial, and it, it basically paralyzed India. Like whenever this came on on Sunday morning, and India is a very busy, bustling place. If you've ever been to India, if it's anything, it's bustling. 
But the whole thing just stopped. I mean, you couldn't get a taxi, you couldn't get a rickshaw, you couldn't do anything. Shops were closed. The whole country basically just shut down to watch this wrong story. And uh, even outside of India and Southeast Asia, wherever the Sanskrit culture spread, so it just had this incredibly powerful effect on this whole civilization. And uh, in fact, it was a political party that swept to power over the issue of Ram. Ram, the Ram, Ram Janmabhumi, the, the land where Ram is said to be born, Ayodhya. Uh, oh my God, no space. Anyway, plan ahead. Here's India, basically, and then up here is Ayodhya, sort of northeast India, not too far east, but up here, sort of south. Here's Nepal down there. Anyway, in the Ram story, Ram's going to go down here to Sri Lanka, which is down here. He's going to go all the way from North India down South India. So there's a, we'll get to that later, why that's significant, that geography. But So the Ram, it, it's hard to exaggerate the cultural, spiritual, religious, psychological impact of the Ram story on this culture. It, it's just this incredibly powerful influence. And, I, and India like other places, but India certainly has always had a lot of intelligent people. If you look at the, India is one of the few places in the world, actually there's only one, a couple, that have independently produced a comprehensive, sophisticated, systematic philosophical tradition. Other places in the world kind of borrowed uh, European philosophy or Indian philosophy, but India has, has had always a very sophisticated culture. Within that culture, this wrong story, has had a, an impact that you really can't exaggerate. And so I think that's not a trivial fact. It doesn't prove the story is true, but it's just not trivial. It, it's a significant fact, the impact the story has had. So um, now, there are many attempts to explain the story reductively. And so I put this little thing on the board. Uh, reduction. There are two kinds of reduction. One kind of reduction is you say the same thing but in simpler terms. Like, for example, you say 48 equals 1 half, you're sort of reducing this, uh, oh my god, rustic fraction, right? Reducing this fraction to that. This is a simpler, in that sense, reduced expression of the same thing. But if you have 48 to the pi or 1 half to the pi, you've got the same amount of pi. However, there's another sense of reducing where you actually diminish something. So 8 is greater than 2. So this is a reduction where you, uh, you end up with less than you had before. This is the kind of reduction, I want to argue, that goes on in the cultural battle, which we talked about earlier in the Indo-European thing, about competing, battling interpretations over what this really is. And the, the reason is, going back to what we talked about at the end of the last class, is people are having very, very different experiences. And they're expressing their experiences in very different kinds of language. They're having actually uh, conflicting experiences. And so there are, there are a few ways that people have tried to reduce the wrong story from the religious point of view. One is socio-historical. Now, as I explained, uh, Ram, of course, uh, the Ram story, Ram was from the city of Ayodhya, which literally means a city you can't fight with. Yod in Sanskrit, Yud means to fight. Ayodhya literally means like un, you can't fight with it. It's too powerful. So he comes from Ayodhya. And they traveled looking for his wife. He was exiled, banished. I, I assume you all read the story. And then he sort of wandered through India, through the central part of India, Chitrakut, he tried to, you know, set up down here somewhere. And then he eventually, searching for his wife Sita, came all the way down here, built, the, this is where the bridge was built, which is called in India Setu Banda. There are many songs about this, Setu Banda, literally. <coughs> 
in, Sa in Sanskrit or Hindi, you bind a bridge. So the bind of the bridge. So we built a bridge here across across this water to to what, what is now Sri Lanka, what was then called Sri Lanka. So because Rome came from the north to south, and because there are these theories we discussed in the Indo-European uh, studies that. Um, that the Aryans invaded, they, or, or they migrated, they came into India, and they gradually pushed their way south, displacing the indigenous people, or the Dravidian people, forcing them down to South India, or they came down and found them in South India, and somehow overcame them, and took over. And so, the idea of Ram coming down from the north of India, down to South India, and to where this demon Ravana, where Ravana, is, uh, is king, and defeating him is simply sort of a, uh, it's really a historical memory of the Aryan conquest of India. However, because Aryan people weren't so bright and couldn't remember that it was actually just a historical event, they began to delude themselves into thinking that actually it was this mythic uh, divine event. But actually, behind the facade or behind the screen of a... Uh, so-called spiritual story. It's really just the history of the Aryan push into South India. Now, I call that a reduction uh, in this sense. Eight is more than two because that may be true, it may be not true, but if it is true, it certainly, from the spiritual religious point of view, greatly diminishes the story. It's no longer the incarnation of God on Earth. It's just sort of a clumsy telling of history in the form of a mythological account. So that's one that's a socio-historical sort of reduction of the story. And that's one person. You see this all the time. This is this is I mean, I don't think there's a there's a textbook on Hinduism in the world that doesn't offer this. And then you get Ram as a uh, I guess sort of in the same sense as a deified king. Ram is a deified king. He was originally a king, he was a really good king, or people thought he was, and then gradually he got upgraded into a deity. So that's another explanation which you'll find in virtually every textbook. Another type of reduction is psychological. And uh, this, I mean, I think an example of this would just be Sigmund Freud, who, actually there was a professor at Harvard one time, a psychology professor, who took Freud's theory of uh, psychopathology and, and applied it to Freud's analysis of religion and sort of demonstrated that, that Freud's own attitude towards religion was psychopathological. <laughs> In other words, Freud had a problem with religion. He was, he, it goes beyond just analysis. He really was, it really bothered him. And so what Freud, someone like Freud would say is that, I mean, there is no God, so to speak, but because basically we have issues with our father, or with our mother, and therefore we kind of play these out in the form of God and goddess theories. And when we talk about religious things like gods and goddesses, we're really, what we're really referring to is our own psychology our own deep psychology, but we can't get at it consciously, so we get at it unconsciously by this type of symbolic expression. So that's a type, that's a case of psychological reduction of a religious or spiritual place. Then, of course, there's philosophical reduction, which you find in some of the Vedanta traditions, saying that the world doesn't really exist at all. Not in the ultimate sense. And as Shankara said, when... Uh, some reason I keep thinking that little song when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie. Anyway, it's like when Maya hits Brahman. When Maya hits Brahman, then what you get is the world. That's what 
the sense we have that we're individuals, you know, chairs, ceilings, football teams, and everything, this all comes from Maya coming in and Brahman. So therefore, this is a reduction in the sense of saying the whole universe, a variety, including Ram and Sri Lanka and Ayodhya, Ram's father, and all of it, is just an illusion ultimately. So that's a philosophical reduction. So in all these different ways, uh, a religious, and not just the Ram story, it can be the Bible, it can be any religious book, it can be a Buddhist claim, any religious book. There are, in fact, when you study religion at a graduate level, often they give you courses methodology, and you learn all these different things like the sociological, the psychological, the philosophical, different approaches to religion. But at the end of the day, what these tend to do is reduce the claim. So at the end of the day, the Ram story, for example, in this case, is not something that the faithful religious people could really recognize or become very excited about. So, uh, and having been, spent a lot of time in India myself and uh, lectured and taught a lot in India, all over India, many different venues from intimate, you know, home engagements to the most important universities and speaking to thousands of people at major events, including events celebrating Ram and so on, just having spoken all, and, and spent a lot of my life having contact with people from India. I think it's fair to say that it's fair to say that the idea of Ram as a real person that came to this world is really at the heart of Hinduism, along with, say, the story of the Mahabharata. So these attempts at reduction would, be, uh, would come into conflict with that essential understanding of Hinduism. And there is a type of tension, actually. So, um, now what is at stake? I wanted to say a little bit about what's at stake with these different interpretations, these different experiences of what Ram really is. Now, the things at stake really are time and space, you could say. You may remember we, we had that whole discussion of the Indo-European, uh, like where does it come from, the Indo-European civilization, and the different views on it. Because, well first let's go to time, that'll become more clear. In terms of time, like the book said this story was written perhaps 200 BCE to 200 CE. And I explained that the genre is much older than that and has a very long oral tradition, which the textbook basically doesn't talk about very much, but which is a scholarly fact. Now, in terms of time, there are four yugas that we talked about. There are four yugas. The first one, the Age of Truth, Sattva Yuga? Oh my God, sorry. Uh, Sattva Yuga, the Age of Truth, or the Golden Age, which lasts 1,600,000 years. That's a million six hundred thousand years. And then after that, you get the Treta Yuga, which lasts 1,200,000 years. And the Dwapara Yuga, 800,000 years. Kali Yuga, this age, which is supposed to last probably 400, 400, you know, give or take 30,000 years. 432,000 years. And it's said that in the second Yuga, the Golden Age, Dharma, Dharma, the sacred law, the, the sacred principle, which upholds the universe, which upholds human civilization, and which upholds our own personal virtue, and consciousness, that in the original golden age, dharma is complete. Everyone, all human beings on earth are fully virtuous. And therefore you hardly need government. Because people need kings or governments when some people don't do the right thing. But if everyone does the right thing, there's nothing to govern. So this is the golden age. So then, it said in this age, dharma reduces by a quarter. In other words, dharma is only 75% of what it was. Dwapara you get 50%, Kali you get 25%, going down to zero. Then uh, there's another incarnation of God. The whole thing is kind of wrapped up and you go back to another Satya Yuga. So now, according to the tradition, Rama appeared in the Treta Yuga. That's a long time ago. 
Since we're about five, according to the tradition, we're about 5,000 years into the Kali Yuga, which means the age of coral. So that means 5,000 plus 800,000 plus, so Ram appeared about a million years ago. Approximately, give or take a few hundred thousand years. So that's a trait to Yuga. Now, if Ram, and then again you have another version, which Ram is a deified king, and maybe appeared maybe a couple thousand years ago, whatever. You can see these are very different ways of experiencing the Ram story. These are very different ways. So time is at stake. Like how, like how does time really move? Is it linear time? By the way, modern science, to some extent, borrowed the biblical version of time, which is just sort of like a, a unidirectional arrow. Time begins at a certain point and then goes in one direction. The ancient Indo-European conception of time, both in India and in Europe also, is time is cyclical, so these, the time goes around and around. So time is at stake, and space, because if you live in India, or if you're just invested in this sacred tradition, then there, you can go to a particular place, and that's the place where Ram actually lived in this world. And people do go to those places. People actually go to these places on sacred pil pilgrimage. And when they go there, they believe they're experiencing the presence of the deity. So now, if the people who brought this culture aren't even from India, in other words, if the Ram story is only 2,000 years old, and the people that brought this whole tradition to India aren't even from India, they're actually, they were some semi-nomadic people from Central Asia that wandered in and beat up the uh, indigenous people. I think you can understand it. It's a very different picture. It's a very, very different picture. So what's at stake in that whole Indo-European quest is, is time, space, identity. Who are we? Where do we come from? What is ultimately real? If you're praying to Ram, as Gandhi did the last moment of his life, if your hopes for salvation are resting in Ram, then all these issues uh, are very serious. They're very, very serious. Another thing that's at stake, I think, uh, because Ram is a real person, he actually came, you know, he, he, he was in the world according to the tradition. He was in the world, he had a human-like form, he, he acted within human history. And so, uh, another thing that's at stake is the whole Vedanta interpretation. We discussed several times, uh, oh, I already wrote that. Saguna, with qualities. So, what the personalist philosophers mean when they say God is Saguna, is that, yeah, he actually has a real form. He has a human-like form, or she, if it's a goddess. That person exhibits mercy, and intelligence, and strength, and justice, and so on. And so when we say a Saguna God in that whole Vedanta debate, I mean, they really mean it. A real, personal God. Now, it appears to many people that this is obviously not true for the following reasons. I want to discuss this for a month philosophically and do a little Vedanta here. The idea is that this is obviously anthropomorphism. This is obviously anthropomorphism in the sense that we have our own human bodies and we, we, we see the world through our bodies, and therefore we project onto the world uh, our own humanness. I would like to not convince you that God really appears in a human-like body, but at least show you that it's very, very easy to problematize this uh, sort of, um, this assumption that it's not philosophically sound to talk about a personal God. At least what I want to show you that the philosophical issue is much more serious than some people would think just by throwing out the word anthropomorphism. For one thing, it depends on how you feel about your own body. It depends on your attitude towards your own body. Do you see your body as something which is essentially physical, 
and essentially corrupt it? Or do you see your body as something which may be a model of something spiritual? Uh, because the Bible says we're made in God's image. I mean, take form. There, there's, there's a philosophical assumption that form limits. Like, for example, we have a bunch of space in this room. So, so if I, let's say, hold up a, a, an object like this little thing I use to make sure I don't go over time. This has a particular spatial definition. It has a particular form. And the, the form, the shape of this little clock is its limitation. It doesn't extend beyond its spatial perimeter or definition. And therefore, to have a spatial definition, to have a form, is to be limited precisely by that form. However, we can also give examples where form actually breaks down limitations. For example, take noise. If you take a bunch of noise, just random noise, uh, and then how much does it communicate to you? Maybe just that there's a lot of noise going on or someone's, you know, blowing some leaves away. But if you take sound and begin to form it, begin to create ratios and proportions and harmonies, you can, pr you can produce music. Now, many people throughout time have felt that music is capable of conveying some of the most profound messages, even non-verbal messages possible. They find incredible meaning in music. And yet music is formed. It's, a, it's taking something unformed sound and forming it. Take language as an example of forming sound. English or any language, typical language, is extremely sophisticated. The morphology, the form of it. So the more you can form language, the deeper the meaning that you can convey. The more sophisticated your communication. So by forming sound into language, you don't limit it. You actually break down limitations. And you could say the same thing for sculpture. You could say the same thing for visual art. The more you have the power to form visual objects, the more you can communicate through them. And, and finally, I would say that there's a whole argument you could get into in terms of whether forms are necessarily limited by time and space. In other words, if there is such a thing as a spiritual form, and this is something which comes up in play, which comes up in the in the Hindu tradition, the idea of a spiritual form, which in fact is not within time and space, a material time and space, and therefore, even though it has a spatial definition, I'll give you one, one quick, very quick example of this. There's a famous story, which I think is even in our book, perhaps, that uh, when Krishna, which we'll talk about, when Krishna was a little child, a very young child in Vrindavan, he was playing one day, and his older brother Ram, Balaram came and complained about him to their mother that Krishna was eating dirt. He was a little baby and he was eating dirt. So Mother Jashoda went and found Krishna and you know, said, are you eating dirt? And he said, no, I'm not eating dirt, and if you don't believe me, just look in my mouth. So Yashoda looked in his mouth, and when she did, she suddenly saw the entire universe within his mouth. And uh, it was a, well, unusual experience. <laughs> and she was astonished, and then because Krishna wanted her love as a mother, he took away that vision. But she did see the universe. That's a very famous story in India, that Yashoda saw the universe within the mouth of her baby. So again, issues of time and space, limitation, the role of form. Are we made in the image of God, or are we anthropomorphically making God in our image? At least what I want to say is, it's not obviously one way or the other. It's not that educated people believe in anthropomorphism and sort of unintellectual, uneducated people that haven't been to college believe that God may have a body. I think it's much more complicated than that. And uh, the philosophers who have believed that God is a person have put forward very sophisticated views. At least I want to say it's a real issue. It's not just obviously, intelligently understanding anthropomorphism versus being kind of like a pre-philosophical true believer 
that still can't recognize their own projections onto God. One last word on that, because this is what, yes? Um, about the anthropomorphism issue, what do you say about um, different religions having different depictions of God, you know, as different people or even animistic religions that right. depict God as different animals? Okay. Yeah, I want to say a word about that. I want to talk about two different types of psychological projection. And the reason I'm taking time for this is because, again, the idea that God comes to earth in a form is really at the heart of Hinduism. And uh, so I want to talk about it. Uh, the first Western philosopher that I know of that speaks about this issue of anthropomorphism and so on is uh, Xenophanes, who... Uh, Anyway, Xenophanes was a pre-Socratic philosopher who had sort of a uh, cynical attitude toward the Greek gods and, and the gods of other nearby cultures like the Egyptians and Thracians and so on. And so Xenophanes gives the following argument. He said that if you look at Greek gods, amazing, they look like Greeks. Greek gods and goddesses actually resemble Greeks. But if you look at Egyptian gods and goddesses, they look like Egyptians. And if you look at Thracian, sort of like north past Macedonia. If you look at Thracian gods and goddesses, they look like Thracians. And then he said, he thought this is really like the knockout punch. He said, if horses and lions and oxen had hands and could draw pictures, you would have gods looking like horses and lions and oxen. <laughs> so, at which, you know, he went back to his corner and kind of he went into his victory dance. <laughs> However, what I would say to Xenophanes is the following that there are two kinds of projection. There's radical projection, where you actually project something out there which doesn't exist. But there's the much more common and much more documentable projection in which you simply see a real thing through a particular lens. For example, let's say we take the Alps, the mountains and you know, highest mountains in Europe. Take the Alps. Let's say, if we, what if we trace the history of European art by looking at different ways that artists have painted the Alps? And so we trace every historical period, you know, from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance and, and all the different, you know, and the, the Impressionistic, anyway, all the different schools of European art. What we'll find is that every historical period painted the Alps in a way that reflects their own culture, their assumptions, their values, just the way they saw the world. Now, could we therefore assume there are no mountains called the Alps in Europe, right? That's, that's basically the argument of Xenophanes. There are no Alps. Because if Egyptian gods look like Egyptians, Greek gods like Greeks, therefore there are no such gods. Therefore there are, there are no Alps. Or take you, for example. I mean, everyone here has lots of friends and relatives and everything, and everyone you know sees you differently. Everyone you know sees you differently. Therefore, as Xenophanes has clearly proved, you don't exist. That's his argument. That if you have an object and people see it differently, it doesn't exist. However, yes? Go ahead. Following the logic of the mountain, wouldn't you just prove that God exists? Like, if you say, okay, I can the Alps one way, and she can the Alps one way. Right. We know the Alps exist because we can see them to paint them. Right. So wouldn't that logic say that because everyone's gods look like them, they, like, know their gods, or yeah, I think that. Yeah, I think that's, that, that's really what it's suggestive of. That's the first argument. Exactly. Now, again, I'm not. 
obviously, you know, in a public university, I'm not trying to convince you that gods exist. I'm simply explaining that it is a historical fact that many people throughout history have believed that there are such things as gods and goddesses. And they've conceived of them differently, but again, there's a family resemblance. They're sort of projecting their own culture onto this basically the same kind of object. And so again, at least we can say, I think without any controversy, that it's a somewhat complex issue. It's not, it's not obvious from these different projections that the thing just doesn't exist. Yes? I think that, like, when you were talking about how, like, Egyptians and, like, Greeks, how they, their gods look like them, I think that that's too broad because the idea of how the god, I mean, like, we think of the god, or Christians think of, like, Christ as human, but not, and, like, they have pictures of black Jesus and white Jesus, but he's still Jesus in human form. So I think that when you think of it like that, like, you're taking it, like, the way that they look is just an idea of how, like, you're going to relate to your God as somebody that's like you. So they still believe that he was human, but it just looked like a Greek or it looked like uh, uh, Egyptian. Exactly. So that's just like an idea of how, but he was still like a human form of God. Right. Right. Exactly. So the question is, how close do these forms resemble the real thing? Is there a real thing to... And that, of course, is a religious issue, which psychologists and historians can't really get at. And that's one point I brought at the beginning of the class. That, you know, I went through the doctoral program at a good school, and there's nothing in the world about what I went through that would qualify me to tell you religious truth. I mean, you can get 27 PhDs from all, you know, the 27 best universities in the world, and you'll be no more qualified than any man or woman on the street to say what God is. Because that's a spiritual issue. So to say, yes? Oh, the animal thing. Uh, that's very interesting. Actually, uh, there, within the Hindu tradition, especially, oh, I'll get to avatar. Uh, Ava, I played this before. Ava means downward. Tara means crossing. So when a divine being crosses down from a higher realm to this realm, it's called avatar incarnation. And God is seen as the creator of all beings, and therefore sometimes God may incarnate within animal forms, not in the sense of some wild, out-of-control, pagan mess, but in the sense of uh, showing the divinity, ultimately, of all life forms. So in the case of Krishna or Vishnu, you have Varaha, Kurma, I mean, you know, different animal avatars. And really, I think, I think the effect it has is showing that actually all creatures are dear to God and that all creatures are coming from God as opposed to being primitive totemism. So, uh, anything else on that? Not all. Yes? I mean, yeah, it's jump been in. bothering me that um, he's, uh, Dr. Rodriguez points out that, that Valmiki Ramayana uh, portrayed Ram as a human being, and then later, like, Ram turns upon us, and they defied Ram. Even in the case of Krishna, 
I mean, and that's an issue, even in the case of Krishna, which we'll get to in the Bhagavad Purana, uh, the stories don't always immediately say, this is God. It creates some dramatic suspense. So anyway, in, in terms of dating different layers of the text, interestingly, the story where it's really about a, a, an Aryan invasion of South India, the oldest versions of the text are from South India. So apparently they really got bamboozled. But anyway, yeah, that's a whole text-critical issue, which we don't have time to go into so much now. But, but it is, because of the oral tradition, it's not really clear what's older and younger. And we can't really say definitely, and we can't really say in the early part of the text that Ram's not God. And so it's, it's not quite as simple as, as it says in the book. Yeah, but I mean, just any lay person would say that I mean, the story just wouldn't pour together. True. There was no... True. Yes. I mean, I, I on the other hand think that the story makes sense being wrong that somebody wasn't omniscient. Because if he was God, then why didn't he just go and get Sita right back? That's what he could have done. That's very good. God, very good point. Actually, yeah, that's very good. I'm going to just, whoops, sorry, done this. Uh, there's a very important, yeah, actually I'm going to try to put these two points together. That was really good. Um, there's a very important Sanskrit word, Leela. And so the activities of God in this world are called Leela, which is often translated pastimes or sports or whatever. Like Ram Leela, in fact, they, as it said in the book, they do these festivals all over India called Ram Leela. And so the idea of Leela is, it's, it's something you do not because you have to do it. Like, let's say, I need money, so I work. I have to work, so I need to feed myself. I need to feed my family. Or I have to keep moving because, you know, there's some police here doing crowd control or I have to take this class, or I have to leave this place now. So anything you have to do, it's your duty, is not Leela. Leela is something you do with absolute independence, just for your own pleasure. It's your own pleasure, whim, to do it. And so the activities, all the activities of Krishna, Ram, and all these different forms of God are called Leela, in the sense that, uh, in fact, there's a famous Upanishad statement. I'll have to uh, write the whole thing out, but it's, uh, well... Let's see, I'm trying to be fast here. Natasya karyam karanam. In fact, I'd be winning something for doing this. Chavidyate. Um, this is a statement from the Upanishads, which means that, um, this means of him, of God, Navidyate, there, no, uh, there is no activity which he's required to do that this is one of the definitions of God, that, that God is that person, or that being, who is not required to do anything, who actually does everything with absolute freedom, and that every other being has to do certain things. So therefore, in terms of, well, let's get into the human thing. If you don't, we'll get into the wrong story a bit now. We'll start the wrong story. The idea was that there was a, uh, there, was, there were problems in the universe. The universe wasn't going well. Because this guy Ravana, and the word Ravana means he made everybody cry. He was just really a, a, real, a real tyrant. And so because Ravana, and, and typically Ravana, and this is a very typical scenario, Ravana performed all these austerities, yoga practice, asceticism, and so he got the power to ask a boon uh, from the gods. So it's a typical thing where by asceticism, by fasting and self-abnegation, self-denial, you develop powers. It's a very common thing. And so Ravana asked for the power that he be, that he be immortal, that, that, he not, that he be invulnerable against any god. 
or goddess or any powerful being. He didn't ask for the boon of being uh, uh, invulnerable in a fight with a human being. He thought that was beneath him. Like, who needs to be protected from human beings? They're so puny. And so therefore, the gods prayed to the Supreme Lord. The gods being just these cosmic administrators, they prayed to the Supreme Lord, or to Vishnu, to come and, and, and save them. Because this Robin had grown so powerful. So therefore, in order to maintain the cosmic legal system, because Ravana, fair and square, had gotten this boom. And so the idea is that when Vishnu comes, he doesn't, he wants to maintain Dharma. Because otherwise, if the gods promise thing, things and don't give them, who will take the gods seriously? So, I mean, legally, Ravana had won this boom. So therefore, uh, Rama came as a human being. Ram came as a human being, Naratvam Apana, says the Bhagavad Purana, that, that he assumed a human-like form because that way he could kill Ravana without violating the promise the gods had made to Ravana. And therefore he came as... So that's consistent with the idea that in the beginning of the story, Ram's depicted as a human being because that was actually the whole point of the story as it's told in many other texts also. Does that help at all? Yes. Uh, you mentioned Dharma and the rules and the legal system. I'm just, this is sort of changing gears, but where does the Dharma Shastras fit in or the Dharma Shastras? It seems like you're moving. I, I, I looked it up in the book, I couldn't find a reference to Dharma Shastras. Yeah. Well, the Manushastra, Dharma Shastra, these were so-called law books or Dharma books written about, well, according to textbooks, about 2,000 years ago. They're concerned with all kinds of technical things, like who can marry whom and what are people's duties, concerned with the caste system, the varnas. Like, if you're a Brahmana, what are your duties, what are your privileges? If you're a Kshatriya, duties and privileges. If you're a Vaisha, a merchant, or a Shudra, a worker. And, you know, basically duties and privileges and things like that. Now, Dharma in the Ramayana is much more concerned with a higher sense of Dharma of justice, the sense of justice, and, and, and the sense of, again, this dharma, this justice, this divine justice which upholds the universe, upholds human society, maintains our own virtue, and so on. So it's all dharma, but the Ramayana is concerned with it at a, uh, in a sense, a more noble level, not just technical rules about who can marry whom and ritual duties and so on and so forth. Not given the Ramayana not given any real significance. In the Ramayana. Uh, no, now I'm referring to like our textbook. Or our textbook. Why? I think they do. The textbook talks. I'm kind of jumping around the textbook because right now we're doing the Ramayana, but I'm, I'm sure it's talked to. Okay. Look at the index. You'll probably find it. Uh -huh. We have a couple of minutes. Anything else about that? I, I wanted to. I hope you all read the book. But anyway, uh, to next week, Monday, we'll really go into the story a lot because it's an amazing story. But I wanted to talk about, well, beginning of the story, two important dharmic issues. And that is, and there's a sense in which the whole story, the whole problem of Ram being banished into the forest for 14 years, and then Sita going, and Sita being lost, it really, the, the real problem is, number one, hunting, believe it, and uh, number two, polygamy. I think I just erased something I needed. And, and this gets into the whole uh, approach that this culture has to legislating morality. What we find is, very quickly, 
in this culture is that there, it's an ancient culture. It's a very, you could say, world-wise or cosmopolitan culture that has a, a realistic look at human nature. Human beings will do certain things, and if you try to restrict them too much through law, the law itself becomes ridiculous. For example, if you're out, let's say, in Nevada, and you're on one of those interstates where you can literally see like 50 miles ahead of you, the road just goes straight like that, and, and there's no one around, there's like no cars in the road, it's a four-lane road, and it says like 55, you know, speed limit. I mean, I've been on those roads, I'm from the western United States, and I mean, roads like that, if you go 80, everyone's going to be honking and passing you. So, so the idea is that if, you, if the law is too unrealistic, people become anarchistic. And so the law has to be somewhat realistic. Now, kings hunted. Kings were always hunting. And so you could say in the Vedic culture, in the Hindu culture, kings were allowed to hunt. But you have all these stories where kings ruin their lives by hunting. So it says, okay, you can hunt. But by the way, here are a bunch of stories of kings that ruined their lives hunting. Like Dasharatha. Dasharatha is Ram's father. He had a hunting accident. He was out hunting. He thought he saw a deer. Typical thing where the king thinks he saw a deer. I mean, it happens all the time. Unfortunately, tragically, you can read in the newspapers at least a few times a year some you know, guy that killed his child in a hunting accident, thought it was a deer. So this is real-world stuff. So Dasharatha thought he saw a deer, and, but actually he shot and killed with an arrow a Brahmin, a young Brahmin. And this young Brahmin was the only uh, means of support for his elderly parents who were blind. He had these elderly Brahmin parents that had no other way to live in the world. They were out in the forest and Dasaratha killed their child. And of course, he was devastated by this. He, he, he was devastated by it. However, at that point, he was cursed by the parents when they heard that he had killed their son. They cursed him that you will also die because they said that we basically, we are going to die now of heartbreak. And they did die, actually. They said that before they died, they cursed them that you will also die of heartbreak from losing your son. So, in that sense, Dasharath losing Ram to exile was really a fulfillment of this curse. So at a cultural level, it's the Ramayan saying to kings, because kings certainly knew the story very well, that, okay, here's what can happen if you go hunting. So that's, so, so one, and, and there are other stories. Parikshit lost his life. Another great king who was the, um, uh, let's, let's see, Abhimanyu, great-grandson of the Pandavas, Arjun, Bhagavad Gita, great-grandson of the Pandavas. We'll talk about Mahabharata. Parikshit, the great Parikshit, lost his life because of a hunting accident. And uh, Pandu, the father of the Pandavas, one of the most famous kings in the culture, lost his life because of a hunting accident. He was cursed because he killed a Brahmin. So, so there's story after story of hunting accidents. Another thing is polygamy. Uh, I wrote this on the board and I erased it. Sa-patni. Uh, Patni in Sanskrit means wife. And sa-with is the way you say co, co-wife. So there was polygamy because, I mean, if, if you study American political history, I mean, John F. Kennedy actually had secret agents bringing in lists of women to the White House. And uh, the let's say the promiscuity of American political leaders, and political leaders, not to speak of France, other countries, uh, is legendary. And so again, real world stuff. King, kings had different wives. However, the word for co-wife, and the same word, 
from Sapatni, Kauai, you get the word Sapatna, which means enemy. And you have all kinds of stories of kings who were ruined by polygamy. Like, for example, the Ramayana. Ram was banished, Sita was stolen. Why? Because of rival wives. And there are many stories like that in the text. There are actually many other stories. So again, hunting and polygamy, real world recognition that people are going to do these things, and yet they tell all these stories to show the disastrous consequences of it. So, any questions? We have one or two minutes. If not, I mean, Monday we'll actually get into the, the whole story of the Ramayana. No? All right, uh, you're free. Have a good weekend. <laughs>